Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? So anybody here ever wear out an old pair of jeans? Ever? You know what I'm talking about? They're your favorite jeans. They feel so good. I remember buying a pair of jeans. I don't even know what the brand, make, model was, but I grew to love this pair of jeans. And then as time wore on, I started to notice that the little knee started to rip out. I thought, oh man, the knee's ripping out. But then I looked around, I saw these other pairs of jeans that people were buying brand new that had sort of holes and that were creatively distressed. It's okay, it's okay, I can keep wearing these jeans because yeah, the knee is coming out, but it looks like I paid an extra $100 for these jeans to have them ripped in exactly the same way. So I kept wearing them until at one point, I don't know if you can see this, you know, it ripped across, but then it ripped down and became like a flap from like the knee down. And then it also kind of ripped in this awkward place where if I were to cut them off and make them like work jeans, it wasn't, it was just a little too short. It just was a little awkward. So sometimes you just have to call it, right? Are you with me? Like, you know, sometimes you'll find an old pair of jeans. This happened to me just two weeks ago. Uh, There's a pair of jeans. I was always thinking about what happened to those. And I found them buried in like in a laundry basket somewhere. Uh, So I probably should have put them away a long time ago but it had been a significant amount of time. And, you know, times change. And they weren't exactly in fashion anymore. So I said, hey, Becca, can I wear these jeans? And she's like, you could. (laughs) But times change, you change. And you may still be in shape, but you also might be a different shape. (laughs) And what was comforting, what was helpful, what helped you make it through cold winters and long moves... What helped you survive those things uh, just won't work for you anymore. Sometimes you just got to call it and you just got to donate them. Or if they've ripped in half, you just have to throw them out, turn them into rags. Jesus had a way of talking about this. He used this analogy of wine and wineskins. It's not really something we're super familiar with before. But in his time, uh, wine was stored and kept and transported and kept fresh in wine skins. I think they took the hide of animals and they would pour the, the wine in there. It would keep it fresh. The thing about the wine skins is there was a certain point where you had to call it as well. They got old. They got brittle. And you could per- particularly tell that they were past their age of usefulness if you poured new wine into an old wine skin because it would just basically begin to disintegrate and leak and you'd lose all the wine. So everyone in his day and age knew you couldn't pour new wine into old wine skins. And this is what we've been looking at in this series, these periods in our lives where what we've built up to help us get by, to help us survive, that hopefully we've built to help us thrive, the good things that we've put into place, the things that tell the world, the things that tell ourselves who we are, why we belong, for one reason or another, just can't get the job done anymore. It's like our favorite pair of old jeans Or the old wineskins that Jesus talked about that used to work so well. We realize they've worked to get us to this point in our lives, but they won't work for the rest of our lives. So in week one, we looked at how we build these things up around us, the container we build to hold the meaning of our lives. We said it can't really do it. And that we need to go further on a further journey. And so the last two weeks, we've looked at Uh, how connection to faith, like a child, can be really powerful towards that end. And last week, we looked about how finding our identities in something else, like in in Christ, can be huge. 
And this week, we'll look at how we can start this journey. Does sound interesting? All right. So to this end, we're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus where people and crowds, uh, they've begun to gather around Jesus. They're following him everywhere he goes. And one day he stops, he turns to them, and he delivers a message about how they can join him in a further journey that goes beyond everything that they've understood about how to make life work. And he tells them the way up starts by tearing down. Let's read. This is Luke chapter 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone will see it and ridicule you, saying, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You know, there's a way to read this passage as a way to separate the real followers of Jesus from the wannabes. And I I think this is a really good passage to help inspire young, passionate people of faith who really want to follow Jesus. You know, that was me. I loved this passage when I was 18, 19, 20. The idea of sort of being really commando for Jesus, you know, being really serious, really passionate, while other people, you know, people with jobs, families, commitments, weren't as tuned into what it really means to follow Jesus as me. They were sort of sellouts, and I could be a commando. And I thought that as I got older, I would really have to be careful about watering down this passage and what it was about, of explaining, why the true, explaining away the true radical nature of this passage. Now, as I've gotten older... I just turned 43 a couple weeks ago. (laughs) All right, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) Now that I have a job, now that I'm married, now that I have two kids and lots of commitments, guess what? My perspective has changed. And to be honest, I no longer think that this is a commando passage, and I don't read it that way. Actually, I think this passage is much more challenging and radical than I ever did, but in a way that my 19-year-old self couldn't have handled. There's actually a harder invitation here than the one to sort of be this commando radical dude or dudette, and one that ultimately, I think, helps me embrace other people instead of parse out who are the real people, the true followers of Jesus, and who aren't. But it sounds like a commando passage, doesn't it? Just a little bit? Think of what Jesus asks here and what it entails. So accepting Jesus' invitation here in this passage entails a certain attitude. 
And here's the attitude that none of us would expect to come from Jesus. Hate. It's super clear. He says, the large uh, crowds were around Jesus, and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate your parents. Hate your siblings. Hate your children. Hate yourself. Really? This has to trouble you. Unless you're just not really thinking or really engaging with what Jesus is saying, it's got to bother you. Unless you're just brushing it off, you don't want to really deal with it. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is a transition. But not to a commando lifestyle, but rather to and beyond that type of lifestyle. Let me explain a little bit. There's more and more being written every day, especially in our day and age, where people are actually looking into these things, about how difficult it is for soldiers to readjust to life after combat. So we have all these people who've been serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, and people are studying more and more the effects of that on who they are and their experience of life in ways that they never have before. And what's difficult in many ways is that wars teach soldiers to develop certain survival techniques that don't always translate into other settings very well. I think an example of a population that tried to address this and had some success as far as I can tell was uh, Japanese communities at the end of World War II. So I was doing some reading, and those communities sort of had the savvy to recognize that this might be difficult for their sons as they came back from war. So many of the young men, they had developed one identity during their formative years, that of the loyal soldier. And that's what they'd been for their country and for their families. But they needed a broader identity to once again rejoin their communities as useful citizens after the war. So as a result, these communities developed rituals to help their soldiers make this transition. So They would always be just maybe a little bit different, but they tended to include these same principles. One, they thanked and praised the soldiers profusely. Thank you for your service. And then they would announce something to the effect of, the war is now over. The community needs you to let go of what has served you and served us well up to now. The community needs you to return as a man, a citizen, and something beyond a soldier. And they would do these in public displays. So they would publicly, with honor, discharge the loyal soldier and welcome their young men back to the experience of a broader life, a wider life. Now, there are seasons of life when we realize that what we've been doing what we've built to make sense of things, what we've called in earlier sermons, this survival dance that we do, needs to be dismissed. It's been good. It's brought us this far, but it can't take us any further. And this is tough because the voice of the loyal soldier that's gotten us through the first half of life, it's done it, and it's done it safely. The, the loyal soldier voice is the one that teaches us to look both ways before they cross the street. It teaches us to have enough impulse control to avoid addiction and compulsive emotions. 
It teaches us how to say no to ourselves in ways that give us dignity and identity and direction and significance and boundaries. All that's very good. All that's a healthy part of growing up. It's not bad, but it can't deliver us to where we're counting on it to deliver us. It's a friend turned foe. A friend turned foe. It's this instinct of self-preservation. It's not a bad thing, but it can only take us so far. You know, as young people, we need it to survive. It helps us get our feet on the ground, but then we trust it too much. We trust our survival techniques so, so much that it can actually get in our way of the ability for us to hear God and to see what God's doing in our lives, to follow him. Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Up, Falling Upward, actually, which is a really helpful for the sermon series. And he wrote this, he says, if this inner and critical voice has kept you safe for so many years as your inner voice of authority, you may end up not being able to hear the real voice of God. So what begins as our friend and helps us down the road, even helps us learn foundational things about God and following him, becomes our foe. Early in life, we need to build up our sense of self, what psychologists sometimes call our ego. But later in life, that ego eventually sets itself up against God. Rohr continues, he says, The first battles solidify the ego and create a stalwart, loyal soldier. The second battles defeat the ego because God always wins. No wonder so few want to let go of their loyal soldier. No wonder so few have the faith to grow up. The ego hates losing, even to God. Hate your father. Hate your mother. Hate your kids. Hate yourself. Literally? No. No, Jesus says too many other things about loving your neighbor as yourself. You have to be able to love yourself to love your neighbor. Jesus says plenty of things about loving other people. His whole life is an example of sacrificial love. But hate what we expect those things, our father, our mother, siblings, this instinct of self-preservation, what we, hate what we expect those things to do for us. Yes. Because if we don't, eventually they turn from friend to foe. Think about how you relate to your parents. Parents are our first survival strategy, whether we realize it or not, right? They're like God to us. You know, they provide every need that we have, food, shelter, bathing, love, instruction. But in the end, our parents can't actually be God for us. They do their best. Some do better than others. But in the end, they all fall short in some way. And growing up, like Richard Rohr is talking about, is saying to our parents, we don't have to say this specifically to them, but in our hearts, in our minds, you're no longer God to me. That survival strategy I have to let go of. You're limited. There's no way you could have met every need of mine. So I'm going to stop weeping over the love you didn't give me And I'm not going to spend the second half of my life upset because I didn't get the love I wanted from you. 
you were limited and couldn't completely give what I needed. So I'm releasing you from that responsibility. I forgive your shortcomings, and instead I'm going to turn to another source. Having parents is a good thing. We don't always have the best, but it's a, it's a good survival strategy. <laughs> Someone has to play those roles in our lives. But at a certain point, all of our parents, including myself, I'm a father too, we're limited, we make mistakes, we can't do things perfectly. At some point, as great a dad as I hope that I am to my son and my daughter, they're both going to have to forgive me. I hope they have a boatload of other things to be thankful for. I hope it's easy for them. But there are going to be things that I get wrong. There are going to be ways that I don't provide for them. And that's going to be healthy. A lot of what I'm talking about are things that you may not actually be in the place of having to worry about right now. Some of you are more on the front end of life. And you're still establishing who you are. Maybe you're going to school, or you're in your first jobs, or you're trying to figure it out. You're going to military service, whatever it is you're doing. And it's good and it's healthy for you to lay that groundwork to figure out who you are. You may not have to worry about this right now. Just log it in the databanks, okay? Some of you have come to the place where what you've tried to do for so long, it just isn't working anymore. And the things you set up in the first half of your life, it's just feels like you're having to hold it all together. Listen up. So for you, this might be something you need to think of down the road. Uh, Actually, Richard Rohr in his book says, uh, you know, you usually don't even have to worry about this before the age of 40. But that might not be you. You might have to worry about this earlier. I'm just saying, it's okay to build your life up, but just know that what you can build on your own will never be enough. And there'll become a time when you need to release those things from being able to provide for you what they cannot. Growing up is hating the expectation that our parents can provide for all of our needs. If we don't do this, we actually end up hating our parents for what they weren't. You can fill in the blank with whatever else you're counting on. But we actually honor and love our parents. We honor and love our spouse by hating the expectation that they can be God for us. And eventually, we have to leave those ways of finding our deepest sense of meaning behind. We have to dismiss that loyal soldier in its survival dance because it gets in the way of discovering who our true self is, who we really are, not our ego that we've created, but who we really are in Christ, in God, in our Creator. That's the sacred dance that can take us into the rest of our lives. This passage is not a call to be a commando. This is a call to dismiss the commando, which is actually harder to do. And Jesus knows this. So in addition to calling his followers to hate their ego, he creates for them an expectation, and the expectation is a super fun one. Cost. (laughs) Jesus tells two quick parables in this passage about building a tower and another about going to war. I think the message in both is, is kind of an easy one to read. It's count the cost. He says that even. Count the cost. Think about it and what tearing down your ego or your established survival techniques, that container that you've made to tell the world of who you are. Think about what that would take. 
And then he drives it home. He says, if that's not, if you really think about that, what you've worked your whole life to build in your career, to tell the world who you are, letting go of that somehow, tearing that down somehow, that's not easy. And you can fill in the blank. Then Jesus takes it home. He says, in the same way, those of you who did not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I really mean it, Jesus is saying. Here's another way to think about this. An analogy that is fairly commonly used to describe beginning or building a life of faith with Jesus is to open the door of your life to Jesus and let him come in. Maybe some of you have heard that. He stands at the door and he knocks. Or for our purposes today, if that life that we have created on our own, that we've constructed through our survival techniques, is that home, inviting Jesus into that Now, imagine that this is what Jesus is actually asking for. But here's the thing. He's not coming over for a visit. He's asking for the home. And when he shows up, he brings a crew. Carpenters, plumbers, electricians. And you can tell they aren't coming over for dinner. They've got tools and sledgehammers. And they start going to work. They're rewiring things and tearing down walls, walls that you have strategically placed to hold up the whole house. That's what he's really talking about here. And man, you could tell that's going to hurt. Particularly emotionally, because you've been counting on those things. You've been getting by, even if it's not a great getting by, even if it doesn't completely work, it's got you here. And Jesus is starting to tap on it. He's looking for where the studs are. And that's why Jesus says up front, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Carrying your cross is resigning yourself to some cost, some pain, understanding that it will be part of the further journey. And that resurrection comes after the cross. And what this really takes? Faith. This is really what, in the end, this all boils down to. Is what is to come better than what you have now that isn't really working? I said in week one, for some of you, you're still building it. And so just put this on the back shelf. But some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're realizing what you've built isn't enough. And to you, Jesus is saying, yes, I know it's not enough. It's brought you this far, but now you need to give it to me so that we can start to tear down what gets in the way of you actually hearing my voice and discovering who you really are in me. And this process of discovering becomes the next step down the road into this further journey we're talking about, which can sustain you for the rest of your life. And to do that, we have a job. And that job is this to learn. It's a process. I'm on the front end. There's a refrain in this passage, and a thing that repeats 
And the refrain puts in front of those who listen to the goal of what they can be if they follow Jesus. And the goal is what Jesus calls uh, disciples. So in verse 27, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Uh, I read a few people and what they thought about the word disciple, what it means. And simply, it just means learner. Disciple is someone who's a student of someone else. The next step is simply to become a learner. We feel like and we believe that we figured things out at least to get by. But Jesus say, no, this is where the learning really begins. And sometimes, if not often, learning begins with, begins with unlearning things that have brought us this far, but won't fit into who you are discovering you are in Christ. And next week, I'll look specifically at one thing that God uses to teach us. But this week, let's just remember why, after counting the cost, Jesus expects that we will still want to follow him. And why the people in this passage, the disciples, the ones closest to him, kept following. I'm pulling from uh, a verse I read in week one in the sermon. Because Jesus has just said, you have to leave everything, give up everything. He said that at another place, and Peter, one of his closest disciples, said this, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, that fields would be career, for me in the gospel or fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all these things he just said we have to hate, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. One hundred fold. This is what understanding your true self is like. It's a picture of abundance. See, when we're trying to build something, we're trying to hold something together, we're trying to get by and get through and protect ourselves, we end up viewing the whole world in this scarcity mode. I've got to hold on to these things because there won't be enough. I've got to prove who I am. I've got to prove that I'm enough. I've got to have this career. I've got to have this family. I've got to need this relationship to set forth why I'm valuable. Or else. This flips that. This is hundredfold type of experience of life. There's more than enough to go around. That's how you view and experience life. Everything opens up. You're not trying to hold on. You're trying to take it all in. That's what life with Jesus, when we're connecting to who we really are, not who we've tried to create ourselves to be, that's what it's like. I can't take it all in. It's too big. It's too good. Imagine the peace that comes from that type of experience. Not living your whole life, if this one wall comes out of my life, it's all going to fall to pieces. Well, you better hold on to that wall. You got to put a lot of energy into buttressing that, making it stronger. You got to build it up. You got to protect it. Because that's all you have. What if everything was open to you? 
What if there was plenty of abundance in the world around you? What would you put your energy to if you didn't have to hold up that wall? As scary as it is to think of that falling down. How could you love your family if you weren't trying to hold that pillar up? And in 2 Corinthians, the early church father Paul describes it this way. He says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. All the promises, yes. The answer is yes in Christ. Every single one of them. And he continues, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What we need is the yes in our souls. We need it stamped on there, birthed in our spirits. And something we can't take has to be given or discovered to be true. This is what I think we're looking for. Affirmation from our creator. You know, we look to our parents for that. We look to a job for that. We look to ourselves for that. But none of those good things can really offer it the way that we need it. We need the yes stamped on our souls. Jesus offers us this yes. This is the sacred dance instead of the survival dance. Sacred dance is so much better than the survival dance we've been doing. Because it's a dance in a field of abundance. And where there's a sense of abundance, there's also a new freedom that comes. That's what this truly brings, freedom. To love, to give, to share. And I think in a little twist of irony, hating our loved ones in this sense, and ourselves, and our kids, actually frees us to love them with abundance in a new and deeper way. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about one specific way that we can lean into this. Let's pray. So easy to preach, Jesus. Ah, So different to live. Pour out a lot of grace on us. If we're early on, and it's hard to even see or imagine what this means, I just pray for a lot of grace for those folks to really be able to build what it is they're building. It's healthy. It's good. Find your career. Find certain things that are important. Bless that. And I just pray for extra grace when it just becomes apparent that those things, as good as they are, are never enough. To know that the message of the Bible is not that you can create it for yourself, but that we can find it in you. And for everyone here who is just at that point where you feel like you're trying to hold it together, but every day a little bit more slips through your fingers. And there's this fear that if I let go of X, if I pull this string, it's just all going to start to unravel. Father, I pray today in this service, as part of this sermon, as part of this prayer, part of the songs that we sing, you would come alongside us 
and let us know that you will be with us as scary as it might feel. Give us what we need to take steps of faith instead of pulling back and trying to hold on. In your name we pray, amen. If you're on the worship team, if you go ahead and make your way forward.